Hello and welcome to the Addicts Anonymous podcast. I'm your host, Jamar. Today's episode 170 and we're going to be interviewing Joseph. How you doing, Joseph? Man, I'm doing good, brother. How are you? 170. That's awesome, bro. Yeah, thank you very much. So um, do you go by Joseph, Joey, Joe? Joseph is good. When I was an addict, I was Joe. So now I'm Joseph. (laughs) Okay, so you have different uh, personalities. You know what that just reminded me of? You know Johnny Cash? Yeah. His wife would call his alter ego Cash. She goes, I don't like this Cash guy. Because she would call him John, not Johnny. Yeah, yeah. So that, that was, sounds when like John me. was when he was sober. He was John. When he was not sober, he was Johnny Cash. Ah, I like that. Yeah, I can relate for sure. I can relate. That guy was crazy. He would take because I've read a lot about him. I love Johnny Cash. He mm-hmm. would take upwards of a hundred pills a day. Um, you know, say like sixty or seventy uppers, then like thirty downers, and then drink to come down. Wow. So he was yeah. crazy. He uh, one quick story is I think it'll be funny for our listeners. Fun fact, Johnny Cash is the only person to ever be sued for burning down a national forest. He got into a car accident or something like that. He started some type of fire in the forest, and he was really high and drunk. So a judge actually sued him, and they got money from Johnny Cash. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, he was the only person to ever get sued for burning down a national forest. That's nuts. Yeah, that's a good fact right there. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, let's, let's talk about you for a little bit. Tell me about your childhood growing up. Yeah, man. Um, if you looked on the outside, my childhood seemed kind of like it was normal. You know, I come from a middle American family. My mom and dad were born in Iraq. Um, so I'm a second generation, what we call Chaldean. So we grew up in a very strict culture, family oriented, you know, work hard, raise a family. Um, and I grew up in Detroit and I played sports. Um, I was, as you would call, I guess you can call it a popular kid. I knew a lot of people. Um, I played like varsity sports, so I knew older people. So I just had a bunch of friends. I was around so many people, and I loved it. Even now, I love being around people. And then at the age of 14, my dad wanted to get us out of Detroit and bring us to where we live now, which is in Florida. So my childhood before that, when you look at it, seemed normal. Now, as I reflected through my recovery, like I remember at 13, like I would drink over the weekends, and I just thought like, you know, it's no big deal. Like I'm just hanging out with my cousins, and we're just having some drinks. Like when I look back, like I was always the one who was like, let's keep going. Let's keep going. And they're like, you know, hey, relax. Like you're you're passing out and you're waking up trying to drink more. Just relax. Um, and I didn't really think it was a problem. I just thought I was a young kid having fun. What um, was the first age you ever took a drink or drugs? So the first drink that I ever took, I was 12 years old. Jesus. I, I, yeah, I actually remember it, too. We, all my cousins were gathering together um, and they caught me like trying to drink. And they were like, if you're going to drink, just drink. Stop trying to hide it. Um, and growing up in my culture, they were like, okay with drinking. They would just always stay like, don't smoke weed, stay away from drugs. So like, I never actually entertained drugs until I moved to Florida because all my cousins that I looked up to and I admired, they would let me drink with them, but they would always say, don't touch drugs, just drink. So drinking is big in the Iraqi culture. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's big. Even when I go I never there thought now, about that, I never, for some reason I thought it would be the opposite. I mean, Ira- right- in Iraq, are, are you Muslim? What is like the main religion there? Yeah, so we're called Chaldeans, so there's only Chaldean. 3%. Yeah, Chaldeans are Christian Iraqis, so they're not Muslim, they're Christians. Um, they grew up in like a small little village in Iraq. Now there's none of them there, but um, they're they're Christian Iraqis. So I grew up actually in a Catholic church, um, and I, I grew up, but I just went to church, didn't really have a relationship with a higher power. But even now when I go back to Michigan, they still drink, and they still like find it weird. Like They all know I don't drink. And I went there last Christmas. They're like, so wait a second. And they probably said this to me like 10 times. Like, so you're still not drinking nothing? I'm like, no. And then they automatically go into like, well, I don't drink because of that. You know, they defend their own drinking. Yeah. And I said, hey, 
I'm not putting that on you. It just, I put it down because it burns me every time. You know, that's what I always say. So, so that's how I grew up. And, and one traumatic thing that happened, you know, going to the childhood that I never realized the effect that it had on me was I was molested from the age of six to eight years old. And what's crazy is I never thought it affected me. The only what's the one thing it did do for me though, um, was it when, when it happened and I remember when the individual got caught, everything happened. I thought like people were going to come to me and start talking to me about it. Like we were going to have, like, I was never, like no one ever talked to me about it. And I just kind of brushed it aside. Like, I don't think people ask me, is that, do you think that's why you got high? That's not why, but what it did for me that I realized is it taught me how to hide behind what's really going on because I actually molested you. It was a close family member. Like not like it was like a cousin that, that like a, I want to say the kind of long distance cousin. Um, but it was a cousin that when we would go there, it would happen. Um, and it was from the age of six to eight, like almost two years. And then he, he got in trouble for it, you know, and, and everything was pursued, everything happened, but nobody ever talked to me about it. And even till this day, like my dad never talked to me about it. And it's really because in our culture, we don't talk about those things. You know, like even today, like when I got out of prison and I started posting and talking about it, my family was like, why are you doing that? Why are you telling everybody what you went through? Like, this is nobody's business. Hide behind your stuff. You know, it's, it's, they want you to hide the inside. So the outside looks better. So they believe if you make the outside look really good, then you'll be fine. Like, that's all that matters is your perception of how people see you, not how you see yourself. And that's what I struggled with, man, especially moving to Florida. Like when I moved here, I'm from the North and I moved down South completely different. I don't know half of the things these guys do, you know, I'm not connecting with nobody. And I start to go through what I call depression. Now, like I just told you, I didn't know how to even talk about that stuff. So I just was like, Hey, how do I deal with this? And somebody started smoking pot and he was like, Hey, you want to smoke weed? And the first time I smoked weed, I was like, great, this is great. I don't feel anything. And then it, then it turned to opiates. And then I did opiates every single day from the age of 14 to the age of 26. And I went so to prison twice. Did you progress quickly? From oh, it like- took, yeah, it was quick. As soon as I took opiates for the first time, I was 15 years old. I, I remember like audibly telling the individual I got the opiates from, bro, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. And that's all I focused on. I, I had a little bit of money saved up. So every time I didn't have any, I made sure I got more. When I ran out of money, to me, it seemed reasonable to take money from people because I needed to get opiates. I I didn't care if I had to steal how I had to get it. Um, But that's what I do. I would steal from jobs that I worked at, girls that I dated, family members just to get money um, because I needed that feeling. I needed the feeling that 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 the drug did for me. It it, I like the effects produced by it, as they say in the book, like, you know, that's what I did it for. But the reality is the drugs didn't become the problem. I just was running from myself. I constantly was always running from me. And the drugs provided that relief temporarily until it was gone and you had to keep going. Yeah. Who was the first person that gave you a painkiller? So um, I remember by name, I won't say his name, but um, it was, it was a guy actually from New York. I was working at a pizza shop. And when I worked at this pizza shop, I was just kind of smoking weed um, and he would work all the time. Now I had a resentment towards my father. So like, I was so angry for being in Florida. I didn't even want to be home. I would just want to be away from the house. So when I got this job, like I would just stay there. Even days I did like, they were like, Hey, you're not working tonight. I'm like, fine. I'll just stay and help off the clock. Cause I just didn't want to go home. Well, this guy would like work all hours and I would just watch him like zooming by, man. He's never tired. I'm always tired. 
I'm like, and then I asked him, I said, why are you not, why are you always moving quickly? Um, and he, he showed me opiates. Um, and he said, I take these. And I was like, bro, let me get, like, it was without a doubt. I was like, I want one. And he's like, I don't know, man, they're young, you know, not, and I'm, if anybody knows me, what I want, what I want, I'm going to get it. Um, and I told him, I said, look, if I'm not going to get it from you, I'm going to find out a way to get one. So you might as well let me get one from you besides me going to some stranger. So Isn't it amazing me- how us addicts, we're, we're so good at getting what we want. Oh, man. We're such manipulators. Bro, I said this the other day, actually, at a meeting, and we were talking about, like, doing what we got to do to stay sober. And I said, I said, you know what's crazy? If, you, if you're anything like me, when I needed drugs, if you know the lengths that I went, to go get drugs and find them. I could tell you stories. You'd be like, holy cow, you're committed to getting drugs. And why did I do that? Because I liked the feelings that the drugs did for me. I believed that it would relieve me from this, but we, and then we come into the program and we think we can't, why are we not taking that same mentality as we did with drugs? I mean, you know how committed I was to getting drugs, but then when I came into the program of recovery, I was not that committed to staying sober. And the reason why was because I didn't believe it. I didn't believe that I deserved it. I didn't believe that it would work. And the first time in my life when I said, you know what? I believe this will work. I chased that just like I chased drugs. Why do you think you didn't deserve it? Well, because I I compared myself to everybody else. I was a victim all the time. You know, I I remember the first time I went to treatment. I went to, um, I came into the rooms and all these people talked about how great their life is and and this is the things that I did. And all I thought, because I'm so selfish and self-centered, especially coming to the rooms, you know, I, I created a lot of damage in my recovery, I, in my addiction. You know, I hurt a lot of people. I've been to prison. I was molested. These are things that I keep telling myself every single day. It's a story that I told myself about me. So when I walk into the rooms and you guys are talking about all these things that can help people, I'm like, it sounds great, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know who I am. You don't know what I've been through which if anybody's in the program, you know, is the exact opposite. So when they would tell me to do these things, I didn't believe it would work for me because I would always say, I'm like, that worked for you, but you don't understand me. Like, you don't know who I am. You don't know what I've been through. You know, I've, I got family members who won't even let me inside their house. And you're asking me to talk to a God of my understanding. Like, I don't even want to do that because why would God want to talk to me? Do you know how, like, I was the worst person there's not an individual that I met in my addiction. And I mean this, like there's not one that said, I'm glad I met this guy because I created damage in every person's life that I hit. So I didn't believe that there was grace. There was forgiveness. I could change my story. I just continued telling myself, this is who I am. And I thought my past was who I was. You know, thankfully today I've learned the past is just things that I've done. And my story, when I came to the room, had a comma on it, not a period. I always thought it was a period. You know, like this is the end of my book, but I was just on chapter four. I still had, I I could still write another 15 chapters if I wanted to. And it was up to me what those chapters look like. I just didn't think there was more chapters in my life. That's a good one that it ends with a comma, not a period. That's a good one. I like, I like what that represents. Yeah, it really does. Cause the journey start, the journey could have started whenever I decided it would start, but I kept putting a period where a comma was placed, you know? So I, I just, when, when you're playing that victim card and you're looking at your past and your mistakes, you're, you, you get in this place that you just think I'm not worthy of anything you guys are talking about. You know, I just don't deserve it because I've been talking about all the stuff that happened to me and who I am and who I was until I realized like, you know what, that wasn't even me. I was just sick. You know, I don't even know who I am yet. Let me go on this journey to discover who I am. You know what I mean? And I know part of me 
before I got help, I was just like, well, I'm different from all you guys. I'm not the same. There's a reason I do this and a reason I do that. I'm just different. I'm not, my big thing was I wasn't like other addicts. And I think we all think that we all like, no, 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 no I'm different. Yeah. And, and, you know, another thing too, bro, was like, you know, when I came into the rooms, I never, like, I always think about a new way of life. Like, that's what it is. And I would come into the rooms and just like, I want to get sober. Like, okay, I, I knew I had a problem. I keep getting high. I don't know how to put it down. I can't do it on my own. And you guys are talking about there's a way. And then I would come in and I would get like two weeks under my belt, three weeks under my belt. And I'm like, okay, I figured it out. I, I did two, three weeks getting sober and now I figured it out. But it's a new way of life. Like that's what the program recovery is to me is I have to change the way I think. I have to change the way I react. I have to, excuse me, I have to self-reflect all the time. I wouldn't, I never looked at the program like that. I only walked in because I didn't have nowhere else to go. I was like, I get it. Drugs and alcohol are my problem. And you guys are talking about like serenity prayers and, and, and steps and doing all this stuff that I'm like, what does this have to do with me using drugs? I just want you guys to show me how to stop using drugs. And then when we go in this deep dive of self-reflection, you got to remember I'm running from me my whole life. And now people are asking me to look at me. But the difference was look at yourself without judging yourself. Look at yourself not alone. Understand that we have been there. This is not who you are. All these things that I never understood. I was running from me and now I got to come into a pro. And that's the hard part for people. You know, you've been running from your drugs and alcohol. If you're out there using or you have, have an addiction or you've been through it. Drugs and alcohol are not the problem. They were a solution to our problem. And and today, now, when you come into a program of recovery, what you're actually asking to do is, you know, it's like taking out the trash. I don't know about you, but, like, I hate taking out the trash. So when the trash is full, instead of taking it out, the first thing I do is I push it down. I'm like, uh, me too. Let, let me push the trash. last night. <laughs> yeah, I probably did it this morning. Let me push the trash down. Well, what happens now? You put more trash in it. And eventually, you can't keep pushing down. And then what, what happens after that? If you don't take the trash out and remove it and put a new trash bag in, eventually either you're going to leave the trash there, it's going to stink, or you're going to keep putting more trash in there and it overflows and it starts going down. Well, imagine that's the stuff that you've done in your past. Imagine that's your life. If you don't deal with it, it's going to overflow. And where does it overflow? In every area of your life. It overflows in your heart so you can't give love, in your family, in your community, in your mind, in your sleep. So what I'm at, what, what the recovery asks people to do, is let's just take the trash out. Let's look at the trash. It's trash. It is what it is. We can remove it, throw it away. It's going to be gone. And let's put a new bag in there. And every time that trash starts, people start throwing trash in there, we're going to start realizing we don't want this trash bag to fill up. But And, and that's a hard thing sometimes. But it's what's necessary. And when you look back, I mean, obviously you've been in it, man. Five years sober right now. I look back at taking the trash out and, oh, my gosh, dude. It, like when I think of how it wasn't that hard to look at yourself, when you realize like, oh, wait a second, those are just things I've done. And if I look at that and I actually look at the things I've done, why did I do them? What was my part? I can make sure I never do that again. And that's the beautiful part. It's like, hey, you can't change the past, but let's look at it so we can make sure you never do that stuff again. We can make sure you never react that way to people. And that's where the comma comes in. That's where writing new chapters of your life come in. And I'm grateful for the rooms for that, man. Yeah. <clears throat> Taking a step back, you started pretty young with the drug and alcohol abuse. Mm -hmm. How was school for you? Did you do good in school? And how was your social life also? Well, when I was in Florida, I hated school. I dropped out in ninth grade. I never went back. Okay. Um, my life was lit. Like, again, going back to the victim, I hated school because I looked at all the reasons why I didn't like it. 
You know, I hated school because they wanted me to study something that I didn't care about. I hated school because I had to get around people that I didn't relate. I had no friends. I had to watch everybody else hang out and go party and go do stuff. And I, I only had a couple of friends. I'm so used to being around so many people that when I came here, it was like a culture shock for me because nobody knows who I am now. And my identity was always in what everybody thought of me. You know, when I was younger, I was like, hey, let's call Joseph, see where we're going. And, and I'm not to, not to brag about myself. I just knew a lot of people. I grew up there. I had big family who they knew people. So we just had so many friends. So when I went to school and they started telling me to do things, I was so rebellious um, that like only reason I went to school in the beginning was because of sports. I, I played basketball. That was the only reason I ever showed up to class and tried not to fail. But I don't know. You, you probably know who Tim Tebow is, right? Yeah, football player, right? That's right. So he went to the same high school that I went to, but he was homeschooled. So what happened for me when I was in eighth grade was I went to the same school Tebow went to. But and I went there only for the basketball program. But because I didn't live in that county, I was just using a different address because I wanted to go to that school. Well, I mean, we don't know exactly what happened with Tim Tebow, but let's just say that he didn't really live in the same county that he was going to school and he just wanted to play football at Nice High School where I went. Well, they did a big investigation when that happened. Um, and if you look it up, you can see the whole Tim Tebow thing in high school was he actually had to move and live in St. John's County. Well, my dad was like, I'm not going to move and live there. You know, you're just going to switch schools. Well, when I switch schools, I go to a different school. And now they're like, hey, we are basketball season's already started. Long story short, you pretty much can't play. But once you told me I can't play basketball, I'm, why am I going to school? So I, I, I was it's funny. I, I didn't go to school for six months and my dad was always working. He never knew. Like he never knew that I was back then they would like call the house phone, you know, yeah. and I, I would erase the house phone number. So my dad would never know that I'm not showing up to school until uh, somebody came to our house and said, Hey, you know, he hasn't came to school in six months. And I remember looking at my dad and now I'm like, well, I'm not going anyways. Like you guys can force me. Like you're going to expel me. Great. I don't have to go to school now. That's awesome. Um, and I dropped out. I didn't, I didn't go. My dad required me to what's crazy in state of Florida is you can go to like, it's called first coast technical college. And actually like, even if you're not 18, like I was at the time, 15, 16 years old, you can go there and take a class for six months and, and not take your GD, but actually get your high school diploma. Um, which it, it blows my mind. Cause I'm like, why don't people just do that? But so I did that. I went there just to get my high school diploma. Um, and once I did that, you know, I, I would lie and tell my dad, I'm going to go to college and do this stuff. But, you know, I, I just, so I dropped out in ninth grade. I was always problematic, you know? Um, so that's for schooling. That's all I did. Man. I, I went for basketball. And once you took that away, I dropped out in ninth grade. So tell us how your drug use progressed. Cause you said the opiates were the big thing for you, right? That was your main yeah. drug of choice. Yeah. The opiates were huge, man. Um, so there was a big pandemic, like epidemic that was happening um, in Florida. And, and yeah, they call Florida's it, huge. Yeah, they called it the pill mill. And and during that time, it was so easy to get opiates. I mean, it was like the easiest thing. You could walk into a doctor's office and just say, I need them, my back hurt, and they give it to you. You pay them money and they prescribe it to you. So so I was doing that. Um, I, was, I was probably taking around maybe four to 600 milligrams of uh, oxycodone. Uh, a day, which is about like a 300 to $400 habit a day. Um, and the more I had, the more I took, like, I remember I would say, okay, I'm, this is good for like two days. This will get me through two days. And all I would think, and what's crazy is how crazy my mind was, man. I would, all I ever thought about was like, even, I don't care if I had a hundred pills, 
all I knew was I would calculate when I'm going to run out. And I'm like, I know I'm going to run out on this day, which means I got to get money now to be prepared. So I don't get sick because I would get, I mean, the sickness coming off of opiates, I never injected because I was so scared of needles. It's the only reason I don't have tattoos. Cause I'm just, I'm still afraid of needles. You can call it soft. Like I can watch when I get my blood drawn, I almost pass out. Like that's just what happens. So uh, it was, it was a bad, I mean, like I said, 400 hours a day, there's no job that could, that could actually like sustain that habit. So I would start stealing from parents, family members, pawning stuff, car hopping. I would go out at night. And if you left your car unlocked, I found it like, and this is literally what I would think. This is a gift to me. That's great. I'm so glad you did that. You know, I didn't really care who I was hurting. I didn't care the lives that I was destroying. I didn't care the people who had to wake up to a damaged vehicle because I had to take their money. I just cared about what I wanted. And eventually that led me to prison. I got arrested when I was 18 years old. Um, and it was mainly for just pawning stuff. I would go to the pawn shop with my ID, fingerprint, everything, not caring. Um, and eventually I got arrested for, it was 12 different felonies, um, for dealing a stolen property, false verification ownership. You know, when you pawn something in Florida, you get four felonies for each item that you pawn. Um, plus I had a burglary that I got caught in. Um, I broke into somebody that I knew, like it was actually like a close friends of the family broke into their home. I cut myself and when I was arrested, they brought up four new charges for burglary. Um, so here I am at 18 years old, sitting in the county jail, um, and I ended up getting two years, um, two years in Florida State Prison at that time. That must have been rough. Yeah, what's crazy is, so I went to prison twice. I went back when I was 22. That was more rough than the 18-year-old because the 18-year-old me, man, it was as crazy as it sounds. I was still like, you can't touch me. That, that was my thought. I was like, big deal. You sent me to prison? Okay, I'm going to hang out here. And it was like tough. I was still a young kid in my, in my mind. So like, yeah, like I miss being home. I miss, but like, I just got accustomed to living in prison. And as crazy as it sounds, I was just like, okay, this is just something I have to do. Kill the time. At least I'm going home one day. Um, and I would just play basketball, work out. And, and as crazy as it sounds, like I look back at that time and like, I don't remember how hard it was for me. As nuts as that sounds like they would, they would let you, I don't know if they have it in New Jersey, but here, Guys who are in prison who are minimum security, they're not like a threat to society. They let them go work in society with a guard and they're cleaning up the highways and stuff like that. So I had a job like that where I was going into the community, cleaning up the highways and and cleaning the cemeteries in the city and stuff. Um, and when I got out, but I will tell you when I went, I got out and I told myself, okay, let's just chill on the drugs. I didn't think I needed to be like completely sober though. You know, I just thought, let me just do this on the weekend you know, like there is no more like taking pills. I'm just going to drink, smoke weed and like just be normal, you know, like not crazy because I had friends who did that and I wanted to be just like them. You know, I don't know about you, man, but I, I sought out to not be the guy who can't drink and smoke weed because I looked at other people who I was like, well, that guy drinks and he smokes weed. He's successful. And I wanted to be like him, you know, or the guy who could drink on Saturday and and he just goes to church on Sunday. He doesn't have a problem. Like, Oh, I can be like that. And I tried to be like those people who occasionally drinks, you know, those moderate people who can drink and put it down. So when I came home, that's what I did. I tried that. I, I enrolled in college to try to go through it. And as crazy as it sounds, I don't even know how it happened, but eventually I'm buying drugs and I'm drinking again. Um, and really it was because I didn't tell myself I wasn't. So when somebody invited me to a party, I went out and I drank. And I would try to prove to myself, you know what I mean? I would try to say, Let me, I'm going to drink on Saturday and I'm not going to drink on Sunday. 
so I don't have to be that guy. And I would do it to prove to myself. Um, but then eventually I would say, okay, cool, I can do that. Now I can drink on Saturday and Sunday. Well, now we can drink on Monday too and, and Tuesday. And now we can smoke weed and eventually I'm picking up opiates again. I'm going back to the thing that I know. And the reason is it's because I never dealt with myself. I was masking how I felt. I was masking my feelings. I was masking my fears with getting distractions, with with going to school and getting a job. And and you see that in recovery now, right? Somebody comes into the program. They get a couple weeks under their belt. They start to feel a little bit better. The fog is lifted from the drugs. They never do the work on the inside. So they start getting a job and getting a girlfriend or a boyfriend and, and thinking like, okay, life is good. You know, I got it now. I got it. And that's what happened to me. I thought I had it. Um, and then it, it, as they say, the disease progresses, man, it was like within a week, I'm dropping out of school again. Within a month, my parents are like, you can't stay at our house anymore. Cause you stole from me. Uh, you stole from my dad's business. So I'm sleeping in my car at this point. Um, and then at the age, so I got out of prison when I was right before my 21st birthday. I went back to prison right before I turned 23 um, on a bunch of charges. I caught probation in between, and then on probation, I violate. And this time, I go to prison for three years um, and two years probation. And in prison, you would think I stayed sober. But anybody who knows, there's a lot of drugs in prison. So I didn't. You know, I, I found another excuse to say I got nothing but time. And I got high every day. Um, until January 23rd, 2016, my sobriety dates the 24th. Um, they sent me to a work release program where when you're in prison, if you're, if you're not getting in trouble, which I just didn't get caught for the trouble I was doing, they let you go work in community with an ankle brace. So it's pretty much like you're on house arrest, but they, you're going to live in a halfway house. And they sent me back on January 23rd and I sat in a 10 by 10 cell. And I remember just thinking at that moment for the first time in my life, I don't know if I know how to stay sober. And that's what it took. It took me to say, there's like, I knew if I got out of that 10 by 10 cell, I knew I would want to go get drugs and probably do it. But I knew I didn't want to. Like, it was such a weird thing that I didn't understand. And it was the understanding that I'm powerless. That was the first time I realized I was powerless. And I, all I did was I got on my knees and I prayed. <laughs> I prayed like, and I cried like a baby. It was the first time I think I was honest with myself. To say, hey, I got a problem. I don't even know how to, like, I, I think I threw my pride and my ego aside. And I said, you don't know nothing. You're scared. And I had to reach out a hand for help. Um, so when I got out of that 10 by 10 cell, I stayed in prison for another four months to finish my sentence. And the first day I came home, I reached out to somebody in the program recovery and was like, hey, dude, I'm scared out of my mind. I know if I get high again, I'm going back to prison or I'm going to die. And I don't want that. Can you help me? And that's what it took for me to actually come and, and start my journey of recovery. So let's talk about that. What was the, so you realized you were powerless. What was the next step after that? What did you do? I turned my will over to care of God as I understood him. Um, you know, one thing is, is even today, man, I love to take my will back. I love to run the show. You know, if everybody would just do what I want them to do. And it's crazy. Cause as I started the program, and I would talk to my sponsor at the time and we're going through these steps. I never realized how much I wanted to run the show. I wanted to be in control of my life. And once I realized that I am not in control of my life anymore, it was scary, but it was also like a weight lifted. Like if something happens in my life, it's not because of me. It's not, it has nothing to do with me. I, I use the analogy. It's like a being in a rowboat with God. 
I row and I let God steer. And for me, it wasn't hard to turn my life over to a care of God as I understood him because I, I knew there was a higher power. I knew there was a God. And, and the reality was I was scared of running my own life. If you look at my life on my will, I mean, from 20, from 14 to 26, all you see is damage. All you see is hurt. All you see is no guidance. There's a bunch of pain. I'm, I'm just a wrecking ball. So why would I want to control my life anymore? And I've always tried to. I tried to not do drugs. I tried to maybe go to school, drink on the week. I've tried every way to run the show. And it didn't work for me. And I was, I'll be honest with you, man, I was so scared. For the first time in my life, I like I remember saying it like I respect drugs and alcohol. I got so much respect for it because that thing is powerful. And like I don't even want to mess with it. It's like getting in a fight with a guy who's 400 pounds. Like imagine you you got a box. Canelo or you got to get in a, a, a boxing ring with Conor McGregor you're almost like dude I don't want to fight you you know and that's what I had to do I had to turn my will over to God and say okay God I'm giving my life to you and let you orchestrate my life I'm gonna row but anything that happens in my life it's because of you you're you're pretty much connecting the dots in my life put people in my life to get me out of myself you know, and then, and that's where I start to turn the will over, you know, so I just had to make a decision. And then I, my, my next thing I had to do was just turn my will over to God as I understand him. How did your inventory come along? So it's crazy about my inventory, man, is when I, when I did, when I, when I started on the four step, I remember my sponsor had talked to me and he said, Hey, anybody who, who you feel when you think of their name makes you angry. And I remember thinking, well, look, I'm more angry at myself than I am at anybody else because I, everybody that, that kind of pissed me off, like a boss that fired me or the girlfriend that dumped me or my dad for kicking me out. Like I deserved it. You know, like, I don't even know if I'm mad at them. And I, I remember treating it like it was homework instead of reflection. So my, I had a hard time actually, like I just put myself on there first because I had a hard time really understanding, like, am I really angry at people? And it took through some prayer. It took me actually reading through, like I read through the 12 and 12 to help me really understand what a resentment is. So it actually took me to, to process my thoughts. And then all of a sudden, and, and this goes to prayer too, like my sponsor would tell me, hey, pray about it. Ask God to show you these things. So I started to, like the first person I put down was my dad. I start, And then I started realizing like, there is some people that I have blamed for why I am where I am. The guy who introduced me to drugs, my dad for moving me to Florida. I blame the girl who told me that I wanted to get sober one time. And I said, let's go to treatment. And she was like, no, no, let's not go to treatment. I can find a way we'll get sober together. And I listened to her. So I, I blamed her for why I never went. And then I started realizing like, wow, I don't even understand how I was doing this stuff until I slowed down to reflect. So when I did the inventory, it definitely made me slow down to understand uh, the best part of it when you, when you get to see your part. You know, because some of the stuff, it was hard for me to see my part. It was hard for me to see, you know, what's my part in my dad moving me here? Like that has nothing to do with me. But how I reacted was definitely my part. You know, how I maybe could have opened the door and had a conversation with my dad just because he didn't talk to me. I could have talked to him. You know, so there's a lot of things I could have done differently, which that's the way people need to live their lives is when you're mad at somebody, the best thing to do is look at yourself. But we don't want to do that because we want to blame them. And that goes back to me running the show. You know, I want to be the guy who, if you do this, you do that, you do this, my life will be better. So 
the one thing that was important for me on my inventory though is is when I met with my sponsor, we sat down to do the inventory. And I do this with all the guys that I work with. He said, Joseph, before we sit here and go over this, I need to ask you a question. Is there anybody that's on here that you didn't put down that we need to talk about? Because if there is, and you're, you're not talking about it and you can think of somebody, that's the reason you're going to go back out. I promise you, like you'll leave here today and it's going to be the one thing that it's, it's either going to eat at you and you're going to go back out tomorrow or you're, you will go back out. I promise you, if you don't be honest and open about that. And as soon as he said it, I knew it was when I was molested when I was six years old. I didn't put that person down on paper because I didn't want to talk about it because I've never talked about it before. And I said it. And I remember like, yeah, there's somebody. He's like, who is it? And I paused and he's like, hey, hey, no judgment here, bro. If you want to stay sober, like just get it out of your mouth. Like that's the reality of it is being 100% honest and not caring about what I'm going to think, what I'm going to feel. So I shared it with him and I told him for the first time, I've, I've never talked to anybody about it. But what, what's crazy, what happened was we talked about it for about 15, 20 minutes. We got emotional. I was in tears. He actually shared with me that this happened to him before and how he worked around it, how he dealt with it. And dude, after, I feel like that was the first time in my life the lights turned on. That was the first time in the, my life that I felt like I almost relieved that weight. Now, it wasn't like I left that meeting feeling like, oh my God, this is great. Like, no, there was still this, like I was still kind of judging myself a little bit. I was still you know, feeling a little bit of weight, but that massive weight that was on me over my life, it felt a little bit lighter, you know? And then he would tell me like, Hey, if we keep doing these things, you're going to keep feeling lighter and lighter and lighter. And then, and then one day you're going to feel heavy again. Cause there's gonna be something we're going to keep getting light. We're just going to keep stripping down that weight, you know? So that, that's, that, that was pretty much the, 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 my sponsor, we went right into it, man. We didn't waste any time. It was let's sit down. Let's go through it. We spent like three hours on, on the inventory list. Yeah, it's a long time. Yeah, there was a lot there. <laughs> yeah. So what did you do? What kind of um what kind of things were you doing to maintain your sobriety once you got it? So my man, my first year, it was like my life. Um and, and I say I wish I would say like all five years it was my life, but man, my first year it became my life because what happened for me, man, is I've tried so many other ways. Like I've been in and out, I've been in and out and I was just sick and tired of being sick and tired. So like whatever my sponsor told me to do, I almost just listened for the first time in my life. Like I remember I worked a job and I hated the job. It, it affected my schedule. It affected everything. There was pessimism around there. Everybody was smoking weed and I would constantly like complain to my sponsor about it. He's like, just stay, do your part keep looking for another job, trust God, clean house and help others. Like you're still stuck in yourself. And, and so right away, man, like the first year, whatever he told me to do. So I was like, well, how am I stuck in myself? What am I supposed to do? He said, well, what are you doing for other people? Are you picking up any commitments? You helping other guys? I was like, bro, I'm 60 days sober. Who can I help? He said, you can help the guy who's 10 days sober. Mm -hmm. You can pour some coffee at a meeting. You know, you can hold the door at a meeting. You can get there early you know, and ask people if they need some help. Like that's like, it's crazy as I was like a baby. Like, I don't know this stuff. I'm so selfish. I'm not used to helping people because I got nothing to give. That's what I always thought. I got nothing to give. That was always my answer when he wanted me to help. I was like, bro, I got nothing to give. And he's like, trust me, you always have something to give. I don't care if you got a day sober, you can hold the door for somebody. You can clean up afterwards. You know, we're going to erase that. I got nothing to give to, I always have something to give. So it was meetings. It, I want to say it was meetings every day. Um, 
Because looking back, I think there was times where one thing my sponsor said was, look, it's not just about the meetings. It's about doing something for your recovery every day. So, like, if you can put in your schedule to make a meeting every day, that's what I want you to do. But if you're not going to a meeting at 7 o'clock because you're meeting with me, you're doing something to his recovery, and that's fine. You know, so and that was the way he sponsored me, was every day I needed to do something to my recovery. I had to wake up every day which was one of the hardest things and stay focused on. Cause he would ask me to call him before I leave the house and I would. And he'd be like, Hey, did you say your prayers yet? I was like, no, I was gonna say my prayers in the car. He said, dude, I need you to talk to God, give up your will today and ask God to put somebody in your life that you can help. And, and that, and it just became a habit. So it would, it would be starting my day with prayers, getting into work. And the one thing that was important that I always told people that I did well, because I was so afraid was anytime I started to get upset, get angry, questioning my thoughts or have a decision to make, I would call somebody, which was hard, but it was like, I almost had to learn how to deal with life, you know, because we don't know how to deal with life when we're like, the reality is this, I'm running from Joseph my whole life. So I take drugs. Well, now Joseph doesn't have drugs and he's stuck with himself. So I'm like, am I making the right decision? Am I not? Like I always question so much stuff early on. Um, you know, Hey, should I sponsor this guy? He wants me to sponsor him. Hey, should I do this? Should I do that? Um, but the fear of going back out is what pushed me to every time. Just like when I didn't want to call my sponsor to complain again about my job. Like I remember the first maybe 60 days I had a job that I completely hated. You know, I was talked down to, they always told me you're lucky. We gave you a job as a felon. And I just felt like I shouldn't work there. But what's crazy is thank God I didn't do my will because Two days before I got a new job, I met I met my wife, who's currently my wife today. So if I would have if I would have been on Joseph's will, I would have lost the most amazing woman that God had in my life. And that's what I learned when you know you don't realize it when you're in the situation. But what happens is if you're going to let God run your life, sometimes you're going through something that you're not happy with, and sometimes it's God trying to get your attention, or it's God doing something for you that that you're trying to do something different, you know. And and we don't realize it when we're in it. So there's so many moments that happened in the first year of my recovery that every single time I wanted to do something different, but God was like, nope, I got you right where I want you. Stay right here. And I'm like, but God, I want, and that's me taking my will back. So my first year in recovery, it was all about learning about me. I, I created a fellowship around me. I had a huge brotherhood. I found one of the most amazing men's meetings. I always encourage people to go to a men's meeting, get a bunch of men around you. So, so you can relate. Cause I mean, young in recovery, you're, everybody's always looking for a girl, or if you're a girl, listen to this, you're looking for a guy. Well, us men, we can relate. We can get together. We can get real with each other. There's no bias. There's no like, Oh man, are you talking to me? Cause you're trying to hook up with me or something like that. So, so that was important. I got a men's meeting. I got a home group. I always talk to my sponsor. We just got the most important thing is man within like, I, I want to say about 90 days, I was done with the steps. And then it was just reliving the steps. Like something came up again, a resentment came up. And then I started going to treatment centers. You know, I'd go to a halfway house once a week and I'd speak to the guys. I'd pick up sponsorship. It just became my life. Like I scheduled my life around my recovery. It was like, oh, I can't do that on Thursday night. That's where I'm going here. And it was almost as important as like, if you're a diabetic and you have to go get dialysis, you can't reschedule your dialysis appointment. You have to do it. And my sponsor constantly told me like, dude, the enemy and your addiction is out there doing pushups. If you're not going to put some stuff in your life where when, when your enemy comes over to try to take you down, you got armor up and you're ready to fight. But as soon as you stop doing the things you're supposed to do, the enemy is going to come lurking because you're weak. So I did that really well in my first year. And I say that because year two and three, I kind of got complacent a little bit. 
like, okay, you know what? I, I can, I can get rid of this commitment. I can get rid of that commitment. I can get rid of this commitment. I don't have to go to meetings every day. I don't have to do this. Like I'm, I'm starting to get busy with like life got in the way. And then I found Joseph thinking the same old thoughts he used to think, except I'm not using drugs at this time. I started blaming other people. I started being a victim again. I started getting irritable and discontent. Um, and thank God that there's, I still had friends in recovery who would constantly try to pull me back in. And what they would do is they would just say, Hey bro, you need to like, at least come to a meeting. You know what I mean? Like I know COVID is here and all this, but like they're doing meetings. Like you haven't been around in a minute. Like, so I, I came right back in and then at the first meeting I came to, I was like, Oh my God, I got emotional. I was like, I can't believe I haven't, like, I missed it. You know, I didn't realize how much I missed that fellowship, how much I missed that. Like it was my people. These are my people and I haven't seen them in so long. And, and then I got right back in and, and started moving forward again. That's great, man. Um, so what type of stuff you do nowadays? How's life nowadays with the family and work and all that? How's sobriety treating you? Well, the reality is life is still happening. I'm just reacting to problems differently. That's how sobriety, like I, I laugh because I'm like, man, AA's messed this up because, you know, I'm in, I'm, AA is the program that I'm in, but recovery or doing the steps, whatever. I say it messed us up because like anytime something happens in our life, we can't like start blaming other, like, it's just like I'm programmed now, you know, that I can't blame the situations. I'm like, no, that's just life. You know, I can't blame somebody, you know, stealing from me. I'm like, they didn't steal from me. They just stole. I'm taking things personal. It's not about you. You know, I'm, I'm programmed to think that way. And, and that I'm actually grateful for that. You know, if I, if you would have took me back six years ago and told me that I'm going to have the life that I have today, I wouldn't, I would have like laughed. I'd be like, there's no way, there's no way that this guy could have this life. So my life today, I mean, I have, I'm married, my wife, we have five kids all together. So she had three kids from a previous marriage and we have two together. Uh, I'm a business owner. I got 16 employees that I, I pretty much operate. Um, you know, it's a seven figure fence company here in Jacksonville, which is another like crazy thing. Like, even when I say it, I'm like, I don't even get it. Um, but God is constantly doing for me, man, what I can't do for myself. It's, it's really the truth of my life today. It's not a testament of me, you know, cause like I dropped out in ninth grade, you know, I shouldn't have what I have. Like, sometimes I'm like, man, it's crazy that I have what I have. Like, yes, I work hard. Yes. You know, I hustle. Yes. I lead. Yes. I do that. But like, man, there's God all over my story. You know, and I couldn't say this story without saying that because people will, will look at me or people will look at you or they'll hear stories. and like, that's you. I'm like, no, 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 that's God using somebody. And God wants to use you too. And all I've done was constantly give my will back to him and say, okay, you know, I didn't know nothing about fence, man. I knew nothing about fence. Like I worked for a fence company for six months and I started putting up fence for like on the side and just figuring it out. And somehow God took that guy to running a 16 employee business with doing seven figures in, in less than four years. Like that's nuts. That's not me. Like if people hear that, I'm like, dude, it's just God putting pieces together. Like I put in work, but God put pieces together. So, so today I do like the business is almost operating itself. Um, we actually just got rid of like uh, one of my assistants. So I'm, I'm rehiring somebody there. So dealing with that kind of stuff, you know, obviously with five kids, there's, there's struggles all over the place. we got teenagers, we got babies, you know, so, so there's problems everywhere. My character defects are constantly popping up, but every day, man, I'm just, I, I want to look in the mirror. Like when I'm feeling bothered by something that's going on in the house or in my marriage, I, I'm just constantly looking at myself because the reality is like, if I'm going to get mad at my wife for, for responding a certain way, I can't change her. And now I'm focused on something I can't change. And now I'm going back down that road. I'm always afraid of that. Like we were joking before we got on here, you know, people call me Joseph and the old me was Joe. 
I was always known by Joe. And, and the reality is I know Joe still wants to come back. Like I, I always feel like Joe's trying to fight Joseph to come back. And then I, there's some things like, and he comes back through my defects. So when I start getting angry and blaming people, I, I laugh and I'm like, that's Joe trying to come back. You know, okay, Joe, let me look at why you're trying to come back. Oh, you're coming back because I was being selfish when my wife asked me to clean the dishes when I was watching football and all I cared about was me. And I yelled, I, I got upset at her, you know, which, which some people would be like, man, that's, it's almost like you're putting yourself down. I'm like, no, no, no. I'm always getting better. I'm always realizing in ways in my life that I can get better. I don't want to be a seven figure business owner, but a $10 husband. I don't want to be a seven figure business owner, but a $10 father or even a seven figure business owner and a $10 man in recovery, you know, and, and right now where I'm out in my life, my business is operating itself. So thankfully financially could be there. So I'm trying to a husband and father is what I am first. But right now the journey that I'm on, which is let's get real is, is talking about the stuff that you and I are talking about, man. I want to give people a platform. I want to, I, you know, nowadays, you know, in recovery, it's so easy for us to get real. Like when we come in, because like, we're scared, we're facing death. Sometimes we're facing like something very traumatic where we're, if we don't get real, we go back out that could either lead us to jail or death. But how many people in the world today are dealing with something similar to an addiction, but they're not treating it like it's their life? You know, they're afraid to have real conversations. They're afraid to say, hey, bro, I'm struggling in my marriage. Can I can I talk to you about something that I'm going through? Or, hey, I'm a father and I'm struggling with with my son. You know, like because right, especially with men, like we don't want to talk about this stuff. We don't want to talk about the things that we're going through because why? We want to act like everything's OK. We want to act like, man, everything's fine. Who's going to listen to me? I don't want to complain about my stuff. And, you know, I just, I don't want to, I don't need to talk about it. Everything's good. Everything's good. Yeah. How are you doing, bro? I'm good. I'm good. And I want people to just get real. So I, I always say I'm vulnerable to give people permission to be vulnerable to me as well. And right now the journey I'm on is, is I'm working with guys in recovery. I'm working with guys coming out of prisons. I'm currently going back into the prisons. Um, it was funny. I went the other day to get fingerprinted at the same place that I was shackled in. And that was a, that was a trip, you know? So, so just doing those things, I'm trying to, I'm trying to help people in the way that I've overcome because I'm still selfish and self-centered. And the truth is, is every day, if I'm not doing something for other people, I'm just stuck in myself. And I hate it. I like, I hate being stuck in myself, but I, I'm always going back to it as crazy as it sounds. It's like, I hate just thinking about me because it's like, what good is that doing for me? And then I become I think that's where depression hits. You know, I think if you ever talk to somebody who's dealing with depression or who they're sad or they're saying their life is not great, you're going to hear all the things in their life that they're not happy about, about themselves because they're stuck in themselves. But I, I, it's hard for me to find somebody who's doing something for other people and constantly just thinking about how can I help other people? Like if, even if you're working a nine to five, like, is there something you can do for other people? And if you're focused on helping other people, that's when I feel like you learn to love yourself. And that's the journey I'm on right now. I want to be a living example that anything is possible. You know, there's no excuse. Even felons coming out, they're so afraid of getting a job because they're like, dude, I can't get a job or I can't rent a house. I'm like, you're right. Some Sometimes it's harder for you to find a job. Sometimes it's harder for you to rent a house. But what are we going to do with that now? Like, you want to live in prison the rest of your life? I mean, you can still find a job. I did. You can still find a home. I did. And here's what I did to do it. You just got to put in the work. You know, and that's the mission that I'm on right now, man. I'm I'm like fired up out of my mind talking to people because I think it's a real thing. I think people don't want to get real 
people are hiding behind something. We're in this world of all the external stuff, you know, like, okay, what about the car that I buy and this that I buy and that? And, and I'm always deep, like, okay, why do you want that? You know, my wife was talking to our daughter the other day. This was actually last night. And my daughter said, I want to get all A's in college. And, but she doesn't know why. Like, why do you want to get all that? Like, I know some people will just end with, I want to get all A's. Well, why do you want to get all A's? Because I want to prove that I'm good enough. Okay. Is there other ways you can prove that you're good enough? Or is it just through like, because the real reason why people want what they want, there's a root to it. You know, I want to be successful. What does success look like? You know, I want to ask more questions behind people's whys. I want to ask more questions behind why people do what they do every day. Cause that's going to help you become the most authentic version of who you are. So this is just the mission that I'm on, man. Just talking about this stuff. Like I love getting on podcasts because my hope is that somebody will reach out to me that hears this. And I, and I mean it. Like I'm hoping someone will say, bro, I heard what you said. And there's an area in my life I'm struggling with today that like I'm just kind of feeling down on myself or I'm dealing with marriage issues or I'm dealing with a son in recovery. I had somebody call me the other day that said they heard a TikTok of mine and his son just went to jail and he doesn't know how to deal with it. And we got to talk for 30 minutes for me to just encourage him, give him a different perspective and show him like, hey, look, your son's got hope. That's the stuff that I want to do because that's my new drug. It's my new dope. I'm chasing it like I chase drugs. So tell us a little bit about your podcast. Yeah, so the podcast is called Let's Get Real. Sorry, and the main the main purpose of it is so about a year ago, man, I said, you know, I wanted to share a message. You know, I knew that I wanted to talk about my story because I believed God was all over the story. And I used to love, like when I first got sober, I would listen to podcasts all the time. You know, I would hear people that got out of prison that I could relate to. And I would almost find hope in what they like in their stories. I'm like, Oh, that dude was in prison. You know, Oh, that guy, I was a drug addict. And look, he made it. like, I was looking for some sense of hope. And I was also looking for like another perspective. So about a year ago, I wanted to start a podcast. And and one of the things I struggled with was like, well, what am I going to talk about? Um, what, you know, I don't have a microphone. I don't know how to do this. So I allowed all my fears to stop me from doing it. Well, eventually I heard something on a podcast where someone was like, if you really want to do something, you just do it and you figure it out along the way. So then like, if you go back to my podcast, my first episode was my story. I was recording it on AirPods while I was driving in my truck. And I didn't really care so much about the audio. I wasn't thinking so much about who's going to hear it. I just wanted to do it. And then I started talking about topics that was important to me. Well, what I found was I'm just one person. I have one perspective. And what I fell in love with was bringing people on to share their stories because I love listening to people's stories. And and again, like a lot of people might relate to me, but there's some things that maybe somebody would hear my story and that you can only say so much about your story. But I want to bring different people on, different perspectives, different walks of life where people who have overcome some stuff and got real with themselves, they had to, they had to face, maybe it's a childhood demon. Maybe they faced their addiction. You know, I had a couple people on here who, who were victims of human trafficking, who are, are living a life today and using their past and creating a purpose for it. So that's the mission of Let's Get Real. It's to, to talk about real life situations, people who are dealing with real stuff, even still now that they're, you know, that people look at maybe me now, they're like, oh, seven figures, five years sober is great. I'm like, man, I'm dealing with marriage, stuff that we deal with every day, business. I'm still dealing with problems and this is how I'm overcoming them. You know, so like I want people to see themselves as, you know what, there's hope. There's somebody out there who, who is an addict just like me. 
maybe you're 30 days sober and you listen to my podcast and you hear somebody who talks about what they did when they were 30 days sober, just to give that little bit of hope, just to give that little bit of inspiration. So that's the purpose of the podcast. I love the conversations too, you know, that you get to meet people that come on there and then I get to connect with people. People hear it and they send me a message and I get to connect with them. And that's what I'm looking for. I'm trying to build a community, man. I'm trying to build people around the the whole let's get real mantra of like, hey, let's sit down and let's talk about what we're really going through. You know, who sh- somebody talked to me the other day and told me he was married. He's dealing with a pornography problem that he found himself wanting to cheat on his wife now because he's he's dealing with pornography. And like, it sounds so deep that people don't want to talk about that stuff. But like, this is a real situation this guy's going through. And he was like, I didn't know who to talk to because I was afraid if I brought that up to somebody, they would judge me. But when I heard you talking about the real life stuff and being authentic and being vulnerable, like I figured I might as well reach out. And I, and I was so grateful for that because I was like, now that's why I do it. I do it because I'm hoping that the thing that you're struggling with today allows you to either open up to me or to somebody so you can create that change in your life, man. Awesome, man. So yeah, I got one last question for you. Yeah. Do you have any advice for people watching and listening? Yeah. So that, that question would be tough, but because everybody's in a different walk of life, but to answer the question in context for anybody listening right now, my biggest message is what is it that you're going through in your life today? What is it that you're masking? that you need to talk to somebody about. I think today in our life right now, we're so busy on the external. You know, we're so busy on chasing something and working towards something, but not knowing why we're chasing it and losing ourselves in the process. You know, I I would encourage somebody to begin with the end in mind. I want you to picture yourself. And if you're not driving right now and you're somewhere where you can, I want you to close your eyes and take yourself inside of a church and imagine you are walking into a church. Everybody's dressed in black. It's a funeral. You walk up to the front. It's a casket. You are there. You are in your casket. You only get one life. One day you're going to be either in a casket, in an urn, wherever. It's going to happen. What do you want people to say about you when you die? This is the stuff you need to focus on because we get so lost in working towards our goals, working towards making money, working. I got to get married. I got to get a job. I got to get a degree. All the stuff that you're working towards, the last thing I ever want anybody to do is lose themselves. You can still work towards those things. It's not a bad thing. But who do you become in the process of that? And begin with the end in mind is so important because like for me, for example, I want my, if my wife were to speak, I want her to say I provided for my family. I was supportive of her and her decisions. I was a good father that I loved her every single day that I I admired her. So guess what I get to do? I get to focus on that every day when I'm home. I'm, I'm literally living an intentional life focused on being that husband business owner, same thing. I mean, in every walk of life, you can still chase the goals you want, but who do you want to become in the process? This is what I would encourage you to do. Maybe write it down on a piece of paper. If you got, if you're a video, you want to notes, whatever you can do to write that down, who you want to become. And every day, just focus on being that person and watch how you'll still, you'll actually get the goals quicker because you're not losing yourself in it. You're becoming yourself and then chase your dreams and goals. You know, so that's, that's the one piece of advice that I would give to people today. It's pretty good advice. It helped me, man. It changed my life. Yeah. Seems like you're doing good, man. Glad to, glad that you're doing so well. Yeah. I wouldn't say I'm doing good. I'm just, I'm blessed, bro. I, that, that's the reality of it. I have a different perspective on my life today. I still deal with stuff. I'm sober. I'm sober minded. My problems are just different problems today. And I just react to them differently. I'm still dealing with life. It's not like life is not coming to me. 
You know, we're still, we still got so many things in our lives that we got to face. But today I'm facing them with an authentic individual. I'm not blaming people. Not all the time. I have to get called on and I'm hard headed, but I have some tools in my life that just allow me to, to say, Hey, how can I look at this different? How can I not create more damage in my life? And then just continue to move forward. So did you have anything else you want to throw in? No, the last thing I'd say, man, if people want to connect with me, they can connect with me on social media platforms. Um, it's Joseph KGKAJY. I'm on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook. And when I when I say connect with me, I don't mean just like follow me. Like for sure, follow me, check out the stuff that I post on there. But I would love to connect with you and like in my messages. You know, if you relate to something and shoot me a message, I 100% respond to everybody. And there's times I, I start creating Zoom calls to talking to people. So that's that's what I'd like. If somebody heard something today that says, Joseph, I want to talk with you. There's some things that I feel comfortable. Like I'll chat with you since I don't know you. Like I'm hoping you do that. I'm hoping that's the purpose and that's what comes out of today. I really appreciate you doing this today. I think it's been a great interview. How do you feel? Dude, I'm, I feel like I'm leaving a meeting. I'm fired up. I'm rejuvenated. Like, I'm ready to talk to some people. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's that's what I like doing this. Like I said, like we were talking about earlier, this is pretty much like a speaker meeting, but you're just reaching a hopefully a wider audience, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I appreciate you for creating the platform, man. 170 episodes. Dude, it takes a lot of work to do that. So like if somebody's hearing this, dude, and they're someone's going to get something from it, whether it's me or you, but you giving that to people today, I just, I admire it. I respect it, man. So thank you for giving me this platform. Thank you, man. That means a lot. It really does. Not going to lie. I like hearing, you know, that it helps people and shit like that. So it's kind of like, you know, you're being selfish where it makes me feel good. But at the same time, like you said, I'm helping other people. So it's not a bad thing. That's right. I agree with that 100%. Yeah. All right, my friend. So sit tight for just a moment. And for everybody watching and listening, if you like what you saw and heard, go below and give us a like. Also subscribe to see when we upload new videos. You can check us out on Tumblr, Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. I also suggest taking a look at our website, which is www.addicts-anonymous.com. There you will find plenty of resources as well as free literature. So again, I hope you enjoyed today and until next time.